Welcome to Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.blogspot.com. I'm looking for support in 2018 to keep the show going and have started a GoFundMe. If the show has been of any help to you on your writing journey, or if you just enjoy listening, please consider donating so that I can continue airing. Visit GoFundMe.com and search for Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire to contribute. Today's guest is Randy Rebuy, author of An Infinite Number of Parallel Universes and After the Shot Drops. Randy joined me today to talk about the importance of having an agent in order to negotiate the best possible contract and taking necessary breaks in between drafting and editing. Michael Sterling disappeared from his main town five years ago. Everyone assumed he was kidnapped. Everyone was wrong. Boomerang explores coming to terms with who you are, what you want, and how vast the difference can be between the two. Boomerang by Helene Dunbar. A lot of my listeners are in the query trenches, so they're always interested to hear about how others climbed out. Tell us about how you got your agent. So I climbed out, and then I got knocked back into the trenches and had to climb out a second time. So it's kind of like two stories coming at you. I had queried a manuscript for a while that didn't go anywhere. So then I wrote another manuscript, queried that one, and that didn't go anywhere. Queried a third manuscript, that didn't go anywhere. So that was good times. And so I ended up going, <laughs> going back to the second one spent like a year revising it very heavily, started pitching that and started getting pretty good feedback going outside of my personal bubble at that point. That's where I met you the first time, uh, one of those conferences where I was pitching that to agents and such. And then I ended up doing like a pitch slam thing for Writer's Digest in New York, kind of like speed dating for pitches. I think it was like a Mm -hmm. minute and a half or something to pitch and then they'd ring a bell and you like rotated to somebody else. And so I did that and ended up getting an offer of representation from an, my first agent that way. And also ended up getting at that same session, the first publishing deal I had uh, was from an editor that was at that session as well. So kind mm-hmm. of a two for one there. Fast forward three years and my agent that I had then uh, ended up leaving the industry. Last summer, I ended up having to go back into the query trenches, which was kind of like a terrible feeling in the pit of my stomach. <laughs> Even though I had had a book out at that point, it was kind of like maybe the first time was a fluke. I had like a new work that I had written, spent some time polishing that, did my research on different people. It was a little easier now than the first time around because one, I kind of had gone through the process. So I just kind of knew the different steps to take. I was a lot more aware of like red flags and such than I was the first time around. I kind of had an idea of like what was standard at that point. And then I also just had gotten to know different writers And so I was more aware of agents than I was the first time around. First time Mm -hmm. around, I was armed with that Writer's Digest book. And then when I was going the second time, it's like, oh, I actually know people now. I could like ask them about their agents. I can ask them their agent's working style, who else they represent, insider knowledge. That kind of helped me target my queries better. I got really good responses. I actually got an offer three days after I sent them out. Ended up talking on the phone with the other people that had offered, asking them questions about their working style and how they approach it, what revision ideas they would have for what I had submitted to them. 
at that time, like even more so than the first time, a much better sense of kind of what I was looking for in an agent rather than just like, I'm looking for an agent. I could ask them targeted questions. For me, it was really important. I wanted somebody who was going to push me to become better. And so I was really looking for somebody who give really good feedback on the piece that I submitted. And so then after talking to different people and thinking about it for a little while, uh, I ended up with uh, Beth Phelan, who's now at Galton's Acker Literary Agency. So your first book, An Infinite Number of Parallel Universes, you actually sold that yourself in that pitch slam, yeah. correct? Yeah. That's so cool. So you've sold a book with an agent and without. Can you talk a little bit about the differences in that process and what's it like? And do you prefer one over the other? I prefer having an agent to make the deal. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, Okay. Why? Part of it is, I think, just because like I didn't, I just didn't know anything about anything at that point. Um, I still Mm -hmm. generally don't know anything about anything, but I know like a little bit more about (laughs) nothing than I used to know. An agent's job is to know that end of the business. And I'm like really bad at kind of the business end of mm-hmm. things. And so with the first one, it was like I ended up getting my agent at the same time. But so essentially, like I had sold the book to the editor myself in that pitch. The agent I ended up taking on was able to negotiate the contract and all of that. In both cases, I didn't negotiate the contract myself. The agent showed me, here's what they're initially sending us. Here's what I negotiated into the contract. And at that point, it's kind of like, oh, I'm glad I have an agent. (laughs) The publisher, I think, expects some negotiation. And so from what I saw in the documents that they gave me is that the advance was was higher than it was initially offered. And then like smaller things, details about who gets the rights to what and all that kind of stuff. The agent comes in with that knowledge, with that information, is able to figure that out and kind of advise you, you know, what's standard for that publisher, uh, what's unusual, what's... What are they adding to sweeten the deal? All that kind of stuff. So for that reason, I'm kind of grateful that I had agents to negotiate those contracts. I've never sold without an agent, but I do often in teaching writing courses or doing a workshop, people ask, do I really need to have an agent? Because they're so fed up with the query process, which I completely understand. I was querying for 10 years. I always tell people, yeah, you do want an agent because one, they'll get you more money up front. Sure, they're going to take 15%, but they will get you more minus their 15% than you would have gotten initially on your own for one thing. But for another, like you said, there's all these things that you don't even think about. Sub rights, foreign rights, rights reversion. That's something. If you go out of print, do your rights revert back to you? That kind of thing. You wouldn't even think to negotiate those things as a writer. You're just like, hooray, someone wants to publish my stuff. Where do I sign? And you can potentially sign away all your rights in perpetuity if you don't know what you're doing. And as you said, there's a whole nother angle to the business that is business. There's no creativity. There's no art involved. It is pure numbers and data, mm-hmm. and profit and loss. And if you don't understand those things, you're not going to do a quick study and understand those things. It's better to just have someone come in and be your agent, do that for you, and they are worth well more than their 15. Yeah, for sure. And even in terms of uh, you know giving that editorial feedback to kind of give you a sense of like when they think it's ready mm-hmm. to start sending out. Because in most cases, you know, you send it to an editor, and if they reject it, that's kind of it. Unless they ask you to revise and resubmit specifically, that's kind of like your shot, right? Right. And I have a tendency, I think, yeah. to be like, all right, it's done. It's great. It's as good as it can be. <laughs> and then my agent will look at it and be like, oh, okay, it's, it's okay. 
we can make this and this and this better and kind of push me to improve it before we send it mm-hmm. out there so it has the best a chance as possible to sell. I run into being manuscript blind when it's my own stuff. I know plenty of people that are overconfident and I know plenty of people that are underconfident. I just read something <laughs> for a friend who is on deadline in like a week and she was like, this is terrible. I'm sending it to you. You need to read it and tell me what all I need to fix because it's going to be like 80% and I'm reading it and I'm like, dude, I marked like a place where there was a comma that could have been a period and that's like it. I mean, this is so good. I don't find myself coming in as overconfident or underconfident. I find myself (laughs) not having a damn clue. It's like, I don't know if this is good. I don't know if this is bad. I am completely numb to the manuscript Mm -hmm. by the time I finished it. So my answer is usually to just put it away. If I'm not on deadline, if it's something I'm just working on on my own, or if I have wiggle room in the deadline, I will put it away. Or I send it to my critique partners. And if I have a lot of time, I will wait four to six weeks before I pick it up again and actually look at it. At that point, I've got enough distance that I can be more critical of myself and my brain isn't auto-filling all of the things that it would normally because the material is so fresh to me. Something that I've learned over the course of, of being published is that I'm not very good at looking at my own stuff right after I finish it. I have to hand it off to someone else or I have to put it away for a while. Yeah, I would agree with that. When you're in the moment working on something, at least in my experience, you're like thinking about it so much. You might be thinking about a scene mm-hmm. just so much and that scene just feels so fully realized in your head because you've imagined it so thoroughly. Mm-hmm. And then when you're working on it in the moment, it's, that's all kind of fresh in your mind. And then when you set it aside and come back to it later, it's like, oh shit, it's like... This scene's two pages long. It's not nearly as intense as I thought it was. Well, and I have a similar problem in that I'll have a scene that I have built the entire book around. I'll have a scene that I wrote 100,000 words to get to. And then I execute it, and it's two paragraphs (laughs) long. And I'm just like, how? I didn't do this right. I didn't do this right because I built everything on this scene, and I didn't do it right because there's only two paragraphs here. But then, as I said, after I get some distance, I look, it's like, no, it only needs two paragraphs. Like, you did it right. It's just that you were banking so much on it emotionally that when it wasn't three pages long, you were like, oh, that happened to me with my fantasy series. The origin point for those books happens three quarters of the way through the sequel. So I wrote close to 150,000 words before I wrote the scene that had been the genesis of everything. But it doesn't take up a lot of space. Like you can really pack a punch in a small amount of space. Dominique is a high school junior from a rough neighborhood in Trenton, New Jersey, where she and her mom are barely getting by. Ben is a musical prodigy from New York City, a violinist at a top conservatory with obsessive talent and a brilliant future. Their worlds collide in some day, somewhere a new YA novel by Lindsay Champion for fans of Jennifer Niven and Nicola Yoon. Pick up the love story that Entertainment Weekly calls a miraculous debut, and School Library Journal raves is masterfully crafted in stores and online now. Up next, the power of writing concisely and how Randy's novel After the Shot Drops addresses the question of what we value in our society. You have two published books, An Infinite Number of Parallel Universes and After the Shot Drops, as well as short stories published in the anthologies Welcome Home and Reading Glasses. 
Do you find your natural style fitting better in short prose or novels? And what do you think are the particular challenges of each? I think my natural style probably fits actually short prose better because I have the attention span of a squirrel. And so it's a lot easier for me to just get that snippet of a story out there. So when I write novels, I try to almost approach it like a series of short pieces. And so I tend to have like pretty short scenes and pretty short chapters, move things mm-hmm. along quickly, kind of for the reader, but even more so just like for my sake to keep me interested. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love minimalism and the ability to convey strong emotions or a strong sense of story in as few words as possible. I'm always amazed by short stories that can put you into a new world and immediately have you feeling for the characters, immediately have you understanding what that world is, and then just within a few pages, leave you emotionally devastated. I'm kind of drawn to that. And so I think when I write novels, I try to approach it in such a way that I'm taking that and just kind of piecing them together over a a larger arc. Challenge, of course, is with short stories or short prose, how do you pack that punch in so few words, do that effectively without under-describing or under-conveying too much. And that's often like a problem I have when I end up writing novels, is a lot of times I'm not describing something enough. And so in my editing process, a lot of times it's uh, my editor or whoever's reading my work that's like telling me what needs more, (laughs) like to build out this character's emotional reaction more. And that's probably a consequence of like being a really big fan of haiku poetry. (laughs) Three beautiful lines. And that should work if I just keep (laughs) doing that over and over again until I have a novel. (laughs) I think you just pitched something, a haiku novel. (laughs) The new trend. That's right. I would read it. (laughs) It's very true that there's a lot of power and brevity. When I am reading something, or even when I'm crafting my own novels, not only do I think about being concise, typically, Depends on the genre I'm writing in, but with my contemporaries, I like to be concise. Mm -hmm. But I also think about the white space, the lack of words, where there are no words. I think about the white space on the page. And if there's a sentence that I want to carry a particular punch, I isolate it. Mm -hmm. That makes a difference. And it's a weird thing to think about as a writer because it's definitely like literally structural. I think it actually has impact. And if you pay attention to, those conscious choices that writers sometimes make, you can see what lines that they really expect to carry that impact in a particular chapter or on a particular page. There are literally times when you're just leading up to a sentence with four words in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of my favorite books of all time is called The Boy Detective Fails by Joe Menno. Have you ever read it? No. It kind of takes the premise of like, the boy detective trope 15 or 20 years later and the boy detective has just gotten out of a mental institution trying to readjust to life again all of his old enemies are like really old now and kind of crazy um and he's like trying to solve some new mysteries as an adult but it uses that white space like you're talking about really well and i remember one of the parts of the book some people would probably find this gimmicky but i really liked it and i thought it worked well last sentence on the page ends before the sentence ends and then you turn there's like mm-hmm. three pages of just blank and then like the fourth or fifth page has like really? the rest of the sentence and i thought it was really powerful that's a physical tension builder because mm-hmm. i can see people just like oh my god like turning those pages super <laughs> fast you know yeah 
I'm listening to The Passage by Justin Cronin right now, which is really good. Super huge Bible style uh, <laughs> sci-fi trilogy, dystopian, end of the world. But it's literary. Mm-hmm. And I was just telling my boyfriend about it the other day, and he made fun of me because I was. he was like, what are you listening to? And I said, it's a book about militarily weaponized vampires. And he was <laughs> like, Mindy, you are not. You're not. He was like, you made that up. And I'm like, no, dude, that's actually what this book is about. And it is amazing. It is so good. He was like, I don't believe you. (laughs) (laughs) So I was reading this and the very beginning is an exchange of emails between a scientist, a doctor that is in South America and then his contact at home at Harvard. And he's just emailing back and forth with him about this trip that they're on and they're going to gather a virus that they believe can do things. And the guy down in South America is telling the guy back home that they have a military escort, that there's soldiers with them, that they're actually armed. Like he knew it was part of a military excursion, but he said, you know, everybody's armed and they're armed really heavily and I don't understand. And there's a couple of asides about that and about the soldiers. And then the very last email that comes in from that scientist in South America is one line and it says, now I understand why the soldiers are here. Mm-hmm. And that's like the beginning of the book. And it's this huge, massive book, but they lead you in mm-hmm. with that, with friends sharing an email. And then there's this one line that makes you go, oh my God, what happened? A very small line that sets mm-hmm. up 800 pages of fiction and it works because of the brevity. Yeah. Uh, kind of for that same reason, I'm actually like a really big fan of uh, verse novels in YA. Long Way Down, The Poet X. Stories where you have very few words, lots of white space, but they're able to convey so much emotion, so much about the characters, you know, just in a few lines. As a librarian, verse novels are a wonderful way to get reluctant readers or hesitant readers or even readers that are easily intimidated just by the amount of text yeah, on the page. Yeah, pick up the it's uh, a wonderful way to get them <laughs> no, they aren't going to pick up the passage. They are not going to pick up the stand. But you can give them Ellen Hopkins writes verse. And her verse novels are freaking huge because they're long, but they're verse. An immense amount of white space in the book just because it's a long verse novel. Mm-hmm. And I have had kids that are so proud oh, of yeah. themselves that they read a 400-page yeah. book. It might only have 50,000 words, but it's like they are so mm-hmm. proud of themselves. I'm proud of you too, you know, and it can really be a jump starter for those kids that struggle or the ones that aren't as confident. That's a huge mm-hmm. help to them. I think there's so much reading comprehension, a different kind of reading comprehension that's involved in reading a verse mm-hmm. novel. You know, I'm a teacher as well. And that just that sense of accomplishment they get finishing a book. And a lot of times they'll read, you know, that Jason Reynolds book or whatever very, very quickly and like maybe in a couple of sittings and mm-hmm. for a lot of uh, reluctant readers, it's like the first time they've done something like that. And it's, I think it's an important feeling yep. for them to have. Most of the verse novels that I have read, I have found very impactful and they stick with you. And it's an interesting phenomenon that these books that have a sparse amount of words can stick with you for so long. And There's a lot of talent and a lot of art going into the white space and the brevity of the sentences. I find it very impressive. I don't know (laughs) if I could ever do one. You should try one. I was kicking around the idea, like I started to try one, and then like another pressing deadline came up, so I've abandoned it. 
Mm-hmm, but perhaps mm-hmm. someday, because I started writing through poetry, actually. The first mm-hmm. sense of like regular habitual writing I did was, in po- was with poetry. That's really cool. I can't write poetry at all. I mean, like, no. That surprises <laughs> me because I find a lot of your writing is very lyrical and a lot of your sentences kind of have that poetic feel to them. I don't know anything about poetry. <laughs> I think poetry is something you, you probably actually have to have a grasp of as far as like meter and uh, things like I don't that. Know, maybe. And I, I don't. You don't think so? That's cool. That's cool. June Jordan, poet, who is very big on like kind of taking poetry away from academics and kind of giving it to everybody, not requiring cool. that huge academic knowledge to step into it as a space. I like it. I like it. Well, then maybe I'll write a poem, Randy. Go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> then you can uh, dedicate your verse novel to me. You can stick your head in the sand when you read it and you're like, oh my God, <laughs> did I cause this? After the Shot Drops is about Bunny and Nasir, two lifelong friends whose relationship is disrupted when Bunny accepts an athletic scholarship to attend a prestigious school across town. So tell us more about the book, how the idea came to you, and what the process of writing it was like. Bunny's really good at basketball, and so he ends up, like you said, taking scholarship to play uh, at this private school. And so the other side of that is that he ends up leaving behind Nasir at their kind of, I guess, underserved public school leaving Nasir very bitter. And so when the story starts, they haven't talked in a few months. Nasir is kind of like mm-hmm. broken off contact and Bunny is trying to do his thing. The focus of the, the novel is on the male friendship between the two of them. They try to work through this, particularly like as males, I guess, in our culture where males aren't encouraged to talk about emotions a whole lot. And then the other part of it is that Nasir has a cousin named Wallace who's in a pretty bad situation. He lives with his grandmother, and they're about to be evicted from their place. And Nasir feels compelled to help Wallace, and that's going to end up causing some problems that resonate in all of their lives. And so it's kind of about that male friendship and kind of what it's like to try to repair a friendship. And at the same time, it's kind of about like who we are responsible to, the different expectations mm. we have to help friends, to help family, to help communities. I guess how characters try to untangle that when those expectations are conflicting. The mm-hmm. idea from the story comes, I guess, from my own life, not in that like all of this stuff happened to me, but athletics were mm-hmm. a huge part of my childhood and my teen years. I pl- spent way more time playing sports than I did reading books when I was a teen. A lot of us, when we're in middle school, you like want to go to the NBA or you know, MLB or whatever. And then like, mm-hmm. as you get older, you kind of realize you're like, you're not that good for the most part. <laughs> and so I think for a lot of people who grow up playing sports, like, yeah, you might not end up like playing professionally. Uh, some people might, but most, most of us are not going to. What sticks with you longer, I think, are the friendships that you form along the way. Um, and a lot of the people that you are on these teams mm-hmm. with, and you're going through these very, you know, extreme situations, you know, wins and losses. And it's a very like intense experience and i think it kind of bonds you closely with the people that you go through that with and so if you're on like the same team with somebody year after year after year that feels like a very close friendship that's going to last longer than participation in that given sport i think also for males in particular it's like one of the very few spaces where boys can kind of be emotionally expressive closer kind of relationship in a safer way i think it's one of the few spaces Mm -hmm. where it's okay to like openly cry Certainly one of the spaces where it's okay to have physical intimacy with other males in a socially acceptable way. 
So I guess with the story, I wanted to delve into that idea. From there, the idea came, well, what happens when one character starts to really experience extreme success? In the story, Bunny is like a nationally recognized high school basketball player and is starting to draw a lot of national attention. And so rather than just kind of tell that story of his, you know, rise to glory or fame or whatever, uh, the more interesting thing to me was thinking about, well, what's the effect on the friendship he's formed with somebody else when that starts to happen? How are they going to deal with that? I love it because I played sports in high school and I agree with you completely that those friendships, they're so intense. There's so much adrenaline and competition and high emotion involved in your sport. And I think it attaches itself to the friendships as well. And those friendships, I agree, they last longer than the sport. And I love the idea of sports being like a safe space for males to be able to express their friendship. And that's the truth. I mean, there's no doubt about it. You can see men hugging each yeah, other on the court each other on the or, court. you know, on the field. Yeah. And it's like, they could never do that. They could never do that. Like on the subway, yeah. like, there's no way. As far as the plot of the book goes, I think it's really interesting that it raises the question of what do we as a society value? Bunny has this amazing talent. And so he's plucked up out of his situation. He gets a shot at a better life because he's good at a sport. I think it's a really interesting question because obviously sports and athletes, and I love sports, so I'm not banging mm -hmm. anything, but that's something that we as a society really, really, really invest ourselves in and say this is important to the extent that people have become millionaires because they're good at a yeah. sport. And uh, I think I was reading a while ago, I don't remember exactly where, but uh, it was that the highest paid public employee in almost every state in the United States is the one of the university college football coaches, right? Which is certainly an indicator of what yep. we value. And, you know, part of the other aspect of the story is that Wallace, the one who's about to be evicted, he's not that talented at the sport. Part of what I'm like mm -hmm. trying to do in the story and part of what Nasir notices is how much everyone is trying to help Bunny because he's good at the sport. Nobody cares about Wallace. Nobody values him because he doesn't have that skill that society values. It raises interesting questions. It's like how we treat our athletes over how we treat even our musicians. Not rock stars, obviously, but, you know, uh, classical musicians or pianists or even the in-the-know team or the debate team. They're not selling tickets yeah, to those, even, you know. I think, like, writing for young adults, you have to, it, like, forces you to think a lot about, like, how your story might impact the reader. And, like, especially as an teacher as well i'm like hyper aware of this but thinking about the ways in which we message to kids their self-worth this idea that like they need to be really good at something to be considered mm -hmm. valuable or to be considered worthy of love or respect but i'm always trying to like also convey that sense of just like worth just inherently because you are a human being because you yeah. exist you matter you're important we ask them to make their decisions so early about what it is that they love and what they want to do and what they want to dedicate themselves to. Like, I don't know about you, but I don't feel like I really knew who I was or what I wanted until I, I was 30. No, now, really, to be honest. <laughs> right? And we're asking these kids who are, you know, 17, 18 years old, you know, to pick what they want to do in college or what they want their career to be. And 
you know, I don't know that there's a better way to do it. Obviously you got to go forge your path sometime, but you know, we really do put them on tracks and say, find your thing and be that thing. And I have had experiences where there were coaches or instructors that had told their students, this is your one Mm -hmm. thing. You're going to dedicate yourself to this one thing, whether it be ballet or softball, this is what you're going to do. And everything else falls by the wayside. You're focusing on this. And I'm like, no, I think that is very poor mm-hmm. life advice. If you want to really succeed in that thing, that is kind of what you have to do is, you know, generally good advice for most of the population. Probably not. <laughs> like if you want to have that be your career and your life and everything, Olympic athlete style. Yes. You're going to pick one thing and do it and do it well. And how much of the percentage of the population are yeah, but, Olympic like How much of us think we should be doing something like that, right? This past Winter Olympics, a couple of like really young snowboarders on the U.S. team, right? They're like, remember, like yeah. 16 or 17? Yes. I don't remember exactly. Very young. And my Very students young. were high schoolers were talking about it. What am I doing with my life? <laughs> and that just made me so sad because I'm like, you're 16. Right. Like, you shouldn't have to feel that way right now. Like, you shouldn't have to feel like you're wasting your life because you're not getting a gold at the Olympics. And but the thing they have to realize is that those kids and they are kids that are getting the gold at the Olympics are probably practicing most of the day, mm-hmm. every day. And I can't say that for sure, because I don't know like the biographies of those individual athletes, but I know that generally an Olympic athlete, they just don't have a lot of free time. It's like, this is what you do. You do this all the time and constantly. And I don't know if I would trade my ability to hop back and forth and decide what I'm going to do on any given day for yeah. a gold medal. And I think certainly a lifestyle that like works for some people, I think the, just the danger comes in when we hold them up as like paragons of you know what teens should be doing or how people yeah. should be living their life generally when it's like, no, that's not going to work for the vast majority of human beings. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I freely admit, because I was watching the snowboarding and those girls, they're really young. And then there's the one guy, I can't remember his name. He's like 15 or 16. Like he's super young. I'm sitting there going, Jesus, I'm 39. What have I done with my life? Like, you know what I mean? Kid, that kid accomplished this at this age. What have I done with my life? And it's like, well, Mindy, you have seven books published and you make a living as a writer. You are not an Olympic snowboarder, you know? Yeah, it's an interesting question of what we what we value and what we hold up. And obviously those accomplishments are astonishing and those are amazing people that have done amazing things. But if we all compare ourselves mm-hmm. to that, then no, it's not healthy. Mm-hmm. Lastly, making time to write while holding a day job and where to find Randy online. So you've mentioned a few times about teaching. So you do teach full-time and you're a writer. Talk a little bit about like your time management. How does this work? How do you get your writing in? When I first started writing, I just kind of wrote over the summers. First few years I taught, I just worked over the summers. And then when I decided I wanted to write, I was like, that's going to be my summer gig. So for a few years, I did that and would kind of produce a manuscript every summer lightly edit it during the course of the year and then like go through this cycle of like getting a lot of rejections from agents because it wasn't that good of a book and then eventually once i got an agent and first book deal i was kind of like oh i need to actually take this a little bit more seriously 
I read Haruki Murakami's What I Talk About When I Talk About Running, in which he relates running to training for a marathon, getting yourself disciplined enough where you just do it every day and you kind of do it routinely, whether you feel like it or not, just getting yourself in the chair or behind the keyboard just to form that habit. It was kind of hard once I started writing a little bit more seriously, I guess, to just write over the summers. It takes a while to get like back into the groove of things. And then I felt like when I was like hitting my stride, it was pretty much the end of summer. I had to go back to school. And so then I needed to find a time where I could write regularly during the school year so that I wouldn't have that problem again, especially as I decided I wanted mm-hmm. to write more. And so then I started writing early in the mornings, waking up usually around 4.30 or so. I would walk my dogs and then write usually for an hour and a half or so until I have to go to work. And that's worked really mm-hmm. well for me. I've been doing that for the last several years. That's just kind of the time that I feel like I'm kind of the most awake. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of like all downhill after lunch. And then when I get home from when I get home from <laughs> school, I'm like super tired. I have like, you know, whatever stresses from the day weighing on my mind. Can't write in the evenings. It's so hard. Like I just feel like my mind is just like legs that won't move in a way. In the mornings though, it's kind of like I feel fresh. I feel alert. I'm not really thinking about anything because nothing has really happened yet that day. <laughs> Over the summers, I kind of keep writing now in the mornings, but generally I'll stop around lunchtime and then just kind of do whatever with the rest of my day. And so that's a pattern I pretty much stick to. If I have a deadline I need to hit, I might force myself to write in the evenings, but that usually involves a lot of coffee to make that happen. Well, I'm an evening writer. When I was working full-time, I'm not a morning person. People that wake up in the morning in order to get their stuff in, like exercise or going to the gym or getting their writing in, they blow my mind. I can't do it. You saying you start to fall asleep like after two o'clock, like I start to wake up. I remember like when I was a kid, I always even like woke up early. I would like wake up early. I remember and like make my dad's coffee before he went to work, like before coffee makers could like make their own coffee. When I was in middle school and high school, when I played sports, I remember I would like go to school early and work out before the day started. I think it took me a while though to kind of figure out, oh, I can use that time to write. (laughs) And tell us where people can find you online. Pretty easy to find online because to the best of my knowledge, I'm the only Randy Rebuy in the world. Last name is spelled (laughs) R-I-B-A-Y. My website is just randyrebuy.com. I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter, at Randy Rebuy. Yeah, I'm most active on probably Instagram and Twitter. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. If you find the podcast or blog helpful, please consider making a donation by visiting GoFundMe.com and searching for Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire. Or visit the blog by going to writerwriterpantsonfire.blogspot.com. Click on the podcast tab and then the PayPal button. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. Join me next week for another episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where writers talk about things that never happened to people that don't exist. <laughs>